All right, we're just talking about uh, that excellent article, They're Watching, from Media Savvy by Sam McManus. The article talks about uh, Roger Smith, uh, who's part of 50 local residents and academics who belong to the Sacramento Media Group, which was founded in 2004 by the Sacramento chapter of the nonprofit California Common Cause. This group is focused on trying to get local TV newscasts to spend, uh, well, to actually spend some time on politics instead of uh, the local traffic accidents. Noted Sam McManus, uh, this group in Sacramento is not alone when it comes to this. The Project for Excellence in Journalism based in Washington, D.C. reported last year that all around the country, 49% of all stories on local newscasts concerned crime, while 24% were about politics and social issues. And I'll wager most of those social issues had nothing to do with politics. This group is calling for at least five minutes of political discussion and noted the article news directors contacted by the Bee defended the political coverage they provide and they chafed at the five-minute minimum, which they consider an arbitrary figure. Noted the article Channel 13's Steve Charlier did not return phone calls, and this is what I really like. Channel 19's general manager Steve Stuck said, Univision does not allow its employees to speak to the media. (laughs) Said Anzio Williams... Channel 3's news director, we don't need an organization like that to tell us about content. And I would say, we beg to differ, Mr. Williams. I think you do. The article went on to quote Diane Heimer, chairwoman of Sacramento City College's journalism department, noting, it's hard for me as a journalism educator to teach my students that the press has an important role as a watchdog of the government and to report to the public and yet see so little coverage of politics. Of course, we just talked about earlier on, on this program, a lot of the coverage one does see of politics is awfully suspect. Nevertheless, we certainly support the efforts of this group, and we're going to try and bring some members on to this program in the future to talk about what they're up to. And we really want to give them a pat on the back for what they're trying to do and hope that some of our local stations will listen. We spend a lot of time every week trying to gather data to talk about things on, on this show, and we spend virtually zero time watching television for the simple reason that you can watch an awful lot of television and gain absolutely no useful information. Anyway, enough said about that. Let's talk about some journalism that's, uh, that's, that's actually, you know, doing what it's supposed to and talk to our own environmental correspondent, Jennifer Davidson, about her article in the current issue of the Sacramento News and Review. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Jennifer Davidson. Doug, I'm happy to be here. As we talked about at the top of the show, you did some investigating into what's going on in our local salmon fishery and wrote about that in the News and Review, and I'm sure you've got some interesting things to report about. I did, and I do. And um, what I didn't have an opportunity to write about in the article is the process of the artificial spawning that actually takes place at the hatchery. And that's actually the reason why the hatchery exists, is so we can propagate the species by growing millions of salmon in a controlled environment because the numbers of wild salmon continue to decline. Well, in the old days, if I can just interrupt uh, briefly, I, I, my understanding is that uh, all of the Pacific coast was one giant salmon fishery. Salmon went all the way to Fresno. They went all over the entire you know, Central Valley to spawn in in the foothills, and and now that we've built dams everywhere, they have no place to go. That's right. Um, Folsom Dam and Nimbus Dam up in our region, they took away over 100 miles of critical spawning habitat for the salmon, and so their populations have 
naturally declined, and then there are other issues that go on as well, but population numbers are, are just steadily uh, declining. Well, well, yes, but the natural cycle is they, they're, they're born in streams, they, they go down the streams out to the ocean, and they come back to spawn and fertilize their eggs and, and die. That's right. But w- when you look at the process that's supposed to enhance the species from a perspective of one who really appreciates the beauty and wonder of nature, you can't help but perceive the process of this artificial spawning as a completely destructive force to the whole natural cycle of life. Well, I actually I don't really know much about the process of artificial spawning. What what does that entail? Once the salmon have made their way upstream to the fork of the American River that dead ends at Nimbus Hatchery, they're ready to spawn, and the hatchery they they go up the ladder, right? Or right, okay. right. And the hatchery has set up the gate so that it spans the width of the river, so they have to make their way up the hatchery's artificial ladder. Um, you know, which is a series of consecutively higher pools of water. And once they make it up into the holding area, they get as many fish as possible into this bathtub-sized holding tank. And the run itself is, I'm going to guess here, guys, I'm going to say it's maybe five feet across in length, and then, you know, it's, it's probably several hundred feet long. But by the time they get into the holding tank, the holding tank is, again, I'm approximating here, maybe... 10 feet wide by, I don't know, 30 feet long. Okay, that's the holding tank. Then when they bring them into the hatchery, they it's about the size of a bathtub, and it's its all mechanical. Everything's electronically controlled, and, and, and they bring as many fish as possible into this bathtub. So I'm going to say there's maybe 100 or, or two, and again, my numbers may be off here, and, and all of a sudden, like for the first moment, I don't know how, to, how many months, these fish, they're not fighting against the current, and, and they're really mellow. And, and you're thinking, okay, you know, this, this isn't so bad. And then all of a sudden, they start thrashing like crazy. And um, I asked the Department of Fish and Game staff, you know, what, well, what's going on? And what's happening is they're sending an electrical current through the water, and so they're actually electrocuting um, the fish as a new method to stun them before they're killed because these creatures, they're ginormous and they're, that's not a word, um, but they're, they're huge and they can actually injure the people who are handling the fish because they have such incredible strength. So you have stunned salmon in a bathtub. Right, and after they're stunned, they, they quickly, they pull them out, they quickly sex them and, and kill them. And the, the method is meant to be efficient, I'm sure, but, but it's certainly doesn't appear to be that way. The, the female's heads are placed between this metal machine, and with the flip of a switch, a knife is supposed to deliver this fatal blow or slice. But um, many of the fish that, that came through that fatal blow were still flipping and fighting with a, this incredible force. Well, but without heads, like a chicken? Oh, no, not at all. It, it, the, the knife is merely supposed to, I think it's supposed to sever through the gills and, and the spinal cord to completely kill it, even though the fish itself will remain intact. intact. Okay. Right. Um, but, but it didn't kill almost all of the ones that went through it. They, they were just fighting with incredible force, flipping all over the metal m- machinery. And then so what happens is the next person in line continues to beat it in the head with what looks like a, a plastic hard hammer. And uh, it took several blows to finally put each fish out. It's just a, a, a brutal, brutal process. Well, this is not sounding good so far, but how does one get sperm to meet egg? As soon as the female is, is um, 
killed, a slice is made along her belly and her ripe pea-sized little orange eggs are then taken and placed in a bucket that must be fertilized within minutes from the time that the oxygen touches them. And the semen is taken from the males immediately on the other side and then they're all mixed together literally by hand. Somebody puts their hand in there and swirls the you know, semen all over the, the little orange eggs and, and there you have it. So now you've got fertilized salmon eggs. Do they put them in gravel? I mean, the salmon have to go back out to sea, so how do they get them to hatch? They they grow them, or, or they, I guess, incubate would be the correct word, in these cylindrical containers that will function as, as their little spawning beds. And one, once they hatch and grow to, I don't know what, what size they need to grow to, they'll be released into the runways out of the hatchery, which is the fun fun part for visitors and and everybody in the community because you can get face to face with these fish as they grow in the runways and you can feed them and they can you can watch them um, as they get larger and larger and then once they do they're going to be trucked off to a couple key locations uh, down in the delta near the bay area and they'll be released at that point they're a small they're about six inches long when they're released the leg of their whole journey down the river towards the ocean is is the most dangerous time for salmon. And yeah. because the numbers are declining so much, they've got to make sure that most of the salmon that they raise are released near the ocean so that they kind of miss that dangerous leg of the journey. Well, <laughs> this is not the picture I had of how the process went down. No, it's a very macabre irony. I mean, we kill them so we can preserve them. It's, it's just... Um, one more example of human stupidity, and, and not against the Department of Fish and Game and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They're, they're doing what needs to be done um, scientifically to propagate the species. What would you say to the argument that people would make that, well, we've got the dam there now, and the dam's not going away, and the salmon, we have to do something about them. Isn't this better than not acting? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the argument. And, right. and scientifically, it's there to do a job, even, even though the numbers continue to decline, regardless of their efforts. Well, it is a grim business, but I, I guess we probably all have to agree this might be better than having, you know, salmon farms that are, seem to be, you know, contaminated and all kinds of small fish and shrimp are being, you know, massively harvested to feed the salmon. So this may be a better alternative. U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Department of Fish and Game are doing everything they can to replicate the, the natural environment for, for this species. I guess in the end we've kind of got a, a grisly, grim picture that I certainly didn't know about, but I guess probably is the lesser of evils. It's the lesser of two evils, and um, you know we have to remember that the, the, the salmon still are here. They're still very much a natural resource. They can be protected, and, and people... Yeah, everyday people can do things to help preserve them. You know, it's really important to keep the rivers healthy by not dumping things down the storm drain. Right. And, and I would say one way to keep the rivers healthy is to not drain all the water out of them and send it to Southern California. That might be another good one. <laughs> yeah, know, that might help too. I mean, I, I did read that, you know, they used to get salmon in Fresno, and now there's no salmon in Fresno because there is no continuity of San Joaquin River that goes all the way there. It is literally drained dry in many locations. Isn't that crazy? Yes, it is. Well, Jen, we appreciate uh, your, your, your rather macabre but interesting look at the <laughs> salmon fishery. And uh, what, what's up for your next article in News and Review? It's a secret. All right. Well, I'm, I'm sure you'll give us a advance notice, nevertheless. Maybe.
<laughs> well, now your, your reporting isn't going clandestine now, is it, is it Jen? And this is pretty, we're pretty open, open policy in this program. <laughs> oh, don't worry, we'll be good. All right. Well, thanks for coming back, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, Doug, sounds great. Have a good one. Because I need to move. Jennifer Davidson writes the Green Days pieces for the Sacramento News and Review. Well, anyway, when I was a student here at this great university, uh, my roommate, uh, Rob, for a while spent some time off the Oregon coast as a salmon fisherman, uh, went out there onto the ocean to catch salmon. And of course, uh, all of our salmon that, uh, that are grown up locally have to make their way down out the Golden Gate, which allows us to segue to our next discussion. That of people who like to challenge themselves by plunging into the bay and swimming across the Golden Gate. Yours truly set out on September 2nd to do exactly that, and, uh, and, and I did complete the journey across the bay uh, in a considerably <laughs> slower time than that of the all-time record holder Bob Roper. Mr. Roper ho- hosts an annual invitation where people can go down and, and challenge themselves and, and the forces of nature, and we thought he'd be a great guest. I had a chance to speak to him briefly uh, uh, last September, and we've been itching to bring him on the show, and now's the time. Joining us from San Francisco is Bob Roper. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Bob. How are you doing? Doing well. You've, you've been swimming in the, in the open water in the bay for how many years? Uh, about 40. Next year it'll be 40 years. Seems like yesterday I just came down and put my feet in the, the shark-infested Bay waters, you know. Well, we we got to talk about the sharks in a minute, but I do want to note right off the bat here that I think everyone that, that looks at this swim is, is still in awe of the fact that in 1969 you traversed the Golden Gate in a little over 17 minutes, a record that stands to this day and I'm sure no one's going to beat. How, Bob, how the hell did you swim the Golden Gate in 17 minutes? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> one one thing, uh, I was I was about forty years younger. Uh, another, I was in fantastic shape, and uh, I was swimming about uh, fifty miles a week. I would just uh, had ideal conditions. I, I I don't think I've seen conditions like that ever since. I mean, there probably has, been, but I mean, everything was perfect, and I had had a great coach and uh, great uh, tide expert, great pilots, and everything like that, and. Um, I was very fortunate to do that. Yeah. I, I would recommend anyone listening who knows anything about swimming and goes down to their gym to try and mark off 100 yards, just 100 yards, because you did basically 17 sets, 18 sets of 100 yards or more. Try to do that in under a minute and just see, just see, how, see how you feel. That's all I would suggest to our listeners. <laughs> it, it ain't easy. For this event, I, I was really impressed by the organization of, of all, all you folks down there. You had the tides worked out uh, to the nth degree. And, and I was rather surprised by your technique of waiting till slack tide until the tide then came in, a flood tide. I guess that, that keeps you from being swept out to sea. Well, uh, on, this, on this one, we uh, waited until uh, almost uh, the end of the flood, the incoming tide. And uh, we not only got to push north, which is quite fast, as you know, but uh, it was it were pushed east into the bay. And uh, I think the last swimmer uh, came in under an hour, and uh, that's phenomenal for for a mile and a half, you know, and uh, but 
we did about six or seven test swims uh, earlier in the year, and, uh, you know, we really got a good handle on it and had a lot of great people helping me with it. And, uh, you know, fortunately, the, the weather was good. The shipping wasn't an uh, interference with us. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was just a, it was a wonderful, wonderful swim to be, uh, to be involved in. I, I was very, very happy that it went off uh, well. I was very happy that people got to share the experiences that I've had over the years swimming across the Golden Gate. Uh, <clears throat> to me, that's that's my uh, my love, the Golden Gate. Uh, thousands and thousands of people have swum Alcatraz, and uh, it's a good swim, but uh, nothing compared to the, to the Golden Gate for me or and a lot of people. So that's the reason I started to swim a couple of years ago, <clears throat> to give the people that weren't members of the two clubs here uh, in Aquatic Park uh, a chance of, of swimming across the Golden Gate. And uh, as long as I'm above ground, I'm going to continue to give the people the opportunity to do that. Now, how fast a current, people look at log books and, and tide tables of, of, of the Golden Gate, you can get some tremendous currents there. How, how fast, people, people that are on sailboats know that sometimes they feel like they're standing still. Yeah, well, like like I said, you have to time it. I mean, uh, you, you you go at the the end of a tide. Uh, in in the case of my swim, the end of the flood and before the start of the ebb. But we didn't go, actually wait until the the very end. We waited, we waited until we still had enough uh, northward current pushing uh, the swimmers across, and and that's what we started. That's what we wanted. Yeah. We started we started west of the of the span and and the current pushed uh, north and east, so uh, it was uh, a perfect day. I was very, very, very uh, pleased with the results. But like I said, a lot of planning and a lot of swimming uh, went into that. You know, uh, people come yeah. down and jumped in and swim, but uh, <clears throat> I was working on the swim probably uh, the early part of this year, getting everything together, the permits and the pilots and, you know, the sponsors and everything like that. Also, I, I want to mention that this is a nonprofit event. We don't have a nonprofit status, but after all the expenses are paid, uh, the remainder of, of uh, the proceeds uh, go to charities uh, around the Bay Area. That's another incentive for uh, people to join in because, uh, you know, um, I'm not making any money on it, and, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to help a lot of people out, uh, you know, that need help. Well, Bob, I'm sure a lot of people listening are going to want to want to look you up on the website, which is pretty easy to find, and 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 maybe participate uh, next year. Sure, October the 11th of uh, 08. October 11th, 08. Very good. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I was really impressed by how many kayaks you had out there, tending to people, making sure everybody's okay, herding them along, makes it a very very safe event. But you mentioned sharks. Uh, sharks. People are afraid of sharks in the bay. I mean, the whole Alcatraz story, the prison. People were always worried about being eaten by sharks. They tried to escape. How big a factor is the shark? I've seen him in the bay, but uh, when you do these swims. That morning before the swim, uh, I, I, I talked to the, the sharks. We call them the men in the gray flannel suit. <laughs> and uh, they, they, they would stop, uh, stop the feeding until after the swim was over, you know. Well, that was, that was very thoughtful. But, but, but in all seriousness, uh, there's really never, never ever been a, a shark attack inside the bay. There was one at Baker's Beach about uh, 45 years ago. A guy and his girlfriend were swimming out, and a uh, shark hit him, and, uh, you know, uh, the girl panicked and started swimming in the shore, and she turned around and saw, the, saw her boyfriend thrashing around, the blood all covered with the water, and she swam in and, and, and pulled him in, but uh, he died uh, the following day. But uh, people have been swimming in the bay for almost 100 years now, and uh, 
nobody's ever seen a shark. Nobody's been attacked by sharks. Seals, yeah, okay. Seals get a little uh, playful and they bump you and they nudge you, and, but, uh, and sometimes they've bitten swimmers. But uh, for the most part, uh, they're probably the, you know, the, the only thing that has to uh, worry about the finny creatures out there. But we always get about sharks. And a lot of people were worried about sharks, especially at the Golden Gate Bridge. But uh, I don't know. For some reason, I don't know. They don't come in. Maybe it's because of the salinity of the water in the bay. Um, whether uh, you know they're open water feeders or or whatever you know, but uh. yeah, because of course the Farallons right off the coast that's considered to be the great hangout spot in the whole world really for the great white. It's that red triangle from Bolinas all the way out to yeah. Farallons down to I forget to Ananarivo. So uh, yeah, they're out there. There's no question about that. And uh, we swam out there a couple of times in relays. We've never seen any. Of course, we started at night, but. Uh, I guess we were lucky too, you know. But that was uh, that was about 20 years ago that we did uh, a relay in and from the Farallones. But wow, that's tw- what is that? Was that tw- 26 miles, Bob? Yeah, about 24, 25 wow. miles. Yeah. Of course, we started at 11:30 at night, and uh, they were sleeping. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> when we've been doing some real, real challenging swims. Uh, two weeks ago, we had two two swimmers swim from Ocean Beach. Uh, to the Bay Bridge, and it's about 10.3 miles. So uh, it was quite a challenge going off uh, Ocean Beach there by Kelly's Cove and through the surf and then uh, past Seal Rocks and <clears throat> Mile Rock Lighthouse uh, underneath the Gold Gate Bridge to the Bay Bridge. And uh, this one girl that did it, she was so, uh, so excited about it afterwards. She said the next morning she woke up, she started to cry, uh, realizing what she achieved. You're basically doing the beta breakers, in essence, in the water, it sounds like. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bob, where should people go on the Internet if they want to learn more about this and how to participate? Is there a website? Golden Gate Swim, uh, Roper Invitational Golden Gate Swim. And uh, like I said, we've, we've opened the event uh, now so they can register now if they want. Uh, tentatively, it's going to be on the 11th of October of uh, 2008. And uh, hopefully we can double what we had this year. When I put on an event, I, I, I put it on for everybody, not just the fast, the medium, but the slow swimmers. We pick out a tide where everybody's going to finish, you know, because they're the real heroes. The real heroes are the ones that gotta, they've got to gotta get there and plug in for an hour, an hour and a half. The hot shots come over in about 20, 22 minutes, you know, but uh, the real heroes to me are, are, the, are the slower swimmers and, and, you know, that dig down and, and, uh, and persevere. Well, on behalf of those real heroes who are slower, I would say that uh, that I enjoyed the event uh, very much. Great. Bob Roper, we appreciate your speaking with us uh, about this uh, very interesting uh, swim across the Golden Gate, and I hope this will inspire some of our listeners to go out and, and join you next year. Okay, great. Thanks for calling. to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade he'd let us in knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade I'd ask my friends to come and see